Welcome to this edition of DBSA's Real Recovery Podcast. For more information, visit us on our website, www.dbsalliance.org. We've been there. We can help. This is Julia Small, DBSA's Parent Volunteer Coordinator. Today, Dr. Daniel Pine joins me to talk about anxiety and depression in children and adolescents. Dr. Pine is Chief of the Section on Development and Effective Neuroscience in the National Institute of Mental Health Intramural Research Program. Since medical school at the University of Chicago, he has been engaged continuously in research focusing on the epidemiology, biology, and treatment of pediatric mental illnesses. This expertise is reflected in more than 300 peer-reviewed papers. Currently, his research group is examining the degree to which mood and anxiety disorders in children and adolescents are associated with underlying abnormalities in the amygdala, prefrontal cortex, and associated brain regions. Dr. Pine, thank you for being here with us. Welcome. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I've actually had the pleasure of hearing you speak several times over the years, and I've heard you say that childhood anxiety is common. Why is that? What is it that makes childhood anxiety so common? Well, so there's a couple things to say about that. The first thing is that it's important to differentiate between what we mean when we say childhood anxiety and what we mean when we say childhood anxiety disorders. Both are clearly common, but one is more common than the other. When we talk about a disorder, we're talking about a child who has anxiety that's so severe that it interferes with their ability to function, that it prevents them from doing something that they otherwise should be able to do. So, for example, a, a child who's anxious about being separated from their mother might not be able to sleep in their own bed at night. While that's common, it's less common than anxiety in general, which we know is a normal part of development. Uh, as children mature and pass through the different phases of development, they all show different signs of anxiety. And these uh, kinds of issues or problems are far more common and, and are probably a normal part of growing up. Uh, the thing that's been somewhat difficult to precisely understand is where to place that exact boundary between when anxiety is normal and when it's abnormal. Uh, as I mentioned, clinically we can do this by looking at which children uh, are impaired, which children have problems. Um, but that's really just a, a clinical judgment, uh, and we'd like to be able to more definitively characterize anxiety as normal or, or abnormal, but, but we can't really do that right now. So, you know, over the last 10 or 20 years, people have become more aware of mental health problems in general and problems with anxiety in particular, and this increased awareness is a good thing. Um, but as people become more aware, we think that they might identify more problems and hopefully bring them to the attention of pediatricians and mental health practitioners uh, so that they can get treatment with this. Mm -hmm. And 
We, I also understand that anxiety and depression can either go hand in hand or one can lead to the other. Can you talk a bit about the relationship between childhood anxiety disorders and depression? Sure. So there are a few things to say about that. The, the first thing is, as you mentioned, uh, anxiety and depression do frequently go together. Now, the second thing to say is anxiety usually starts earlier than depression, so it's relatively rare to meet a child before puberty uh, or adolescence, which we usually think of as around the teen years. Um, bef- before that developmental period, it's relatively rare to see a child with depression uh, where it's quite common to see children with anxiety. Now, a portion of those children with anxiety do go on to develop depression. And it's hard to say exactly what the proportion is. Um, it's, it's less than half, um, but still a substantial minority, maybe as many as a third of kids with a, a problem with anxiety will go on to develop uh, depression. So it's a, a little bit one of those glasses half full, glasses half empty stories. You know, if you want to look at the glass is half full side, you can say to yourself, most kids with a problem in anxiety are not going to develop depression. So it it usually does not lead to depression. So that's a glasses half full way of looking at it. A glasses half empty way of looking at it is to say that um, depression, even after puberty, is relatively rare among uh, people who have no history of anxiety. So people who have no history of anxiety, oh, maybe 5 to 10% might develop depression at some point. So the, the rate is twice as high uh, if you have a problem with anxiety. So the, the glass is half empty view is that there's a substantially increased risk of the child with anxiety developing a problem with depression, even though the overall magnitude of that risk in terms of absolute proportion of kids who get depression is still relatively low. Mm-hmm. And I've also heard that childhood anxiety can be somewhat easier to treat than childhood depression. Yes, that's that's true, and, and that's actually based on two things. Um, probably the most important scientific data is that if you look across the many different kinds of treatment studies that are reported in the research literature, what we see is that there's a larger difference between the success rates of what we call active treatments. And these are usually either um, a particular form of psychotherapy called cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT or a form of antidepressant medication called SSRI or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. When we look at the difference between the response that children with anxiety to have to one of those treatments relative to other control treatments, things like placebos or supportive psychotherapies, the magnitude of that difference is larger in anxiety than it is in depression. The other important piece of evidence is when we look at kids with anxiety and kids with depression in other research literatures in terms of how they fare over time as they pass into 
uh, adolescence and adulthood, or when we follow them in treatment studies to see how many relapse uh, when uh, treatment is discontinued. Again, the story is really better in anxiety. Uh, most kids with an anxiety disorder, when we follow them over time, do quite well over time. Uh, a, a substantial minority will go on to have significant problems, but but it is the minority. We can't say that about kids with depression. Once kids develop an episode of major depression, um, the prognosis is more guarded than it is when they've had a problem with anxiety. So, you know, one of the reasons to pay attention to anxiety is the hope would be that if we did a better job of treating it, we might not only have an effect on anxiety, but we might be able to prevent episodes of depression. And, and again, the hope is that since we generally do better treating anxiety than we do treating depression, the hope would be that that might be the way to have an impact on depression by treating anxiety. Mm-hmm. What do you think it is? Uh, you know, I, I actually have had, you know, children with depression myself. And, and what do you think it is about depression that makes it so challenging to treat? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, and clearly there are, there are a lot of factors that go into this. Uh, I think one factor is that there's a lot more what we call heterogeneity in depression than there is in anxiety. That, that when we look at the kind of clinical presentations and when we look at, um, the constellation of symptoms that uh, kids with anxiety disorders have, uh, there tends to be less variability. Uh, they tend to be more similar relative to when we look at kids with depression, where the, the presentation can be quite variable. So that's clearly one factor. Another factor is the kind of complicating conditions that can arise tend to be more significant in depressive disorders than they do in anxiety disorders. So, for example, there's a stronger association with conduct problems in depression than there is with anxiety. And also there's quite a strong association with substance use problems in depression. Finally, the basic science models that we have in the anxiety disorders tend to be uh, more similar to the the clinical conditions that we see. And um, this has generated a lot of new ideas for how to maybe treat anxiety. And I think the same thing has not really happened with depression. Uh, there, there continue to be important what we call serendipitous clinical discoveries. Uh, and some of these have some backing in basic neuroscience. So for example, uh, there's a lot of interest now in the utility of ketamine, but in the area of depression, pretty much all of this research is in adults, uh, where a lot of the most exciting things in anxiety research have come from studies in children. Mm-hmm. Yes. You mentioned um, SSRI antidepressants, and I know that they have been in the news recently, the black box warnings and the controversy around that. Can you provide some perspective about that controversy and suicidal thoughts among children and adolescents? Sure, and and that's another one of those kind of glasses half full or or glasses half empty stories, you know, that... um, uh, the picture is relatively clear, but it's somewhat nuanced. And and depending on what side of the picture you want to emphasize, 
um, it, it's easy to be misled. So, so let's talk about the good news first. Um, the first piece of good news is that the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, are generally good treatments for pediatric anxiety disorders, meaning that the rate at which kids get better is pretty high. And in fact, when we compare psychotherapies like cognitive behavioral therapy to uh, SSRI medications, the rates of recovery are really about the same. And in in many respects, um, particularly for kids who are, who are uh, quite anxious and uh, not willing to be exposed to the things that they're afraid of, the SSRIs are somewhat easier for those kids to use than cognitive behavioral therapy. So that's one piece of good news. The other piece of good news is that the overall rate of side effects, in, including this uh, concern about thoughts about suicide, the overall rate of side effects that are concerning is relatively low. Uh, it's probably around 10% for any significant side effect that would interfere with treatment. And this specific concern about uh, thoughts about suicide um, Probably about 1% to 2% of kids develop thoughts about suicide when they're on an SSRI. So, you know, the overall good news story is that the medicines generally work well and the overall rate of side effects is pretty low. There's also a bad news story, and, and there's probably two sides to the bad news. One side is that I, I think the field um, caught on to this idea relatively late. Uh, so the SSRIs were being prescribed for pediatric anxiety disorders really beginning in the early 1990s. It, it was really 10 years before people really came out and recognized that these uh, nuanced thoughts about suicide were a problem that really needed to be acknowledged. And so I think it is important to say that it, it is a problem. Um, it does happen, and that the field was relatively late to pick up on that. Now, you know, we could spend a lot of time talking about why the field was late to pick up on that, and a lot of people have different thoughts on it. You know, so the, the problem is not that common, so we needed very large studies before we could see that. So that was clearly one issue, and others have raised concerns that, the fact that many of the studies were done by pharmaceutical companies might have contributed to this long uh, time lag. And, and I, I think one could argue about those points, but no matter how one wants to look at it, it clearly is the case that this does happen uh, in uh, a group of children, that about 10% of them will have some concerning side effect. Um, and um, about 1% to 2% of kids will specifically develop thoughts about suicide. The last uh, concerning thing to say about the SSRIs is we're really only beginning to understand how it is that they work. And uh, in particular, we really do not know nearly enough about their long-term effects. So I think different mental health practitioners when they look at this uh, combination of risks and benefits, uh, kind of come down on on the side of uh, which treatment 
is better or which treatment you should start with a little differently. Uh, I think the I think arguments can be made that they're both reasonable first line treatments, and and I, I do think most people would agree with that that they're that they're reasonable first line treatments. For myself, if all things are equal and a child is willing to try cognitive behavioral therapy and a competent cognitive behavioral therapist is available, then then I think cognitive behavioral therapy is the best first-line treatment for pediatric anxiety. The same is not true for depression. So everything that I've just said about the SSRIs is only true for anxiety. The, the data are actually a little stronger uh, for SSRIs relative to cognitive behavioral therapy and depression. But, but for anxiety, uh, again, if a child is willing to undergo cognitive behavioral therapy, can really do that, and the therapist is available, then I would say that cognitive behavioral therapy is, is probably the first line. Not, not everybody would say that, number one. And even for me, not all children are willing uh, to undergo cognitive behavioral therapy because it, it requires the child, you know, to face their fears, to, to be exposed to the things that makes them afraid. And, and some kids are just too afraid to do that. And other kids might be willing to do that, do that, but a competent cognitive behavioral therapist is not available. In those circumstances, I think it's perfectly reasonable to begin with an SSRI, being aware of the fact that, uh, again, about one in ten uh, children will have some significant side effect that will interfere with that child's ability to stay on the medication. Right, and the the main message to our parents is that they need to be aware of any side effect that their child might experience. That's exactly right. So they need to be aware. You know, they should listen to what I said, and that um, I think uh, not as many um, practitioners. Uh, are aware of these data, partly because the story has been so confusing. So a parent should be able to have an, an open discussion uh, that covers all the points that I just covered, and healthcare practitioners should be aware of all the issues that, that I just walked your listeners through. Yes. <clears throat> very, very, very helpful. Thank you. Sure. Um, can you tell us, uh, uh, going back to some of your research at NIMH, can you tell us about the research advances in neuroscience that you've been working on? Sure. So, you know, one of the most exciting things about basic research in general, and, and we see this really with all different kinds of medical problems. So we see it with cancer, uh, heart disease, even uh, infectious diseases is when we do the kind of basic research that is performed, um, and, and for uh, psychiatry, that's neuroscience, uh, there are certain kinds of benefits that we see early. And the main benefits that we see is we get new ideas about treatment. So that's really one of the more exciting things about the research in neuroscience. Um, it's generating a whole host of new ideas about treatments. Now, in some avenues, these are ideas about new medications. Now, um, because I work primarily with children, and uh, there are many non-medication treatments that are available, I think uh, practitioners and families are less interested in new medications, and they're more interested in other new kinds of treatments. So again, uh, there's much interest in the basic research on anxiety about non-medication treatments. 
So in that area, the research that I have been doing is about attention, and attention is the process where our brain kind of very rapidly decides where our information processing resources should be allocated. So, you know, you can think of it a little bit like if you were to go to the movie theater and you were to to watch a movie, um, attention is the process that has you attend to certain parts of the movie and, and ignore other parts of the movie. Now, great movie makers know that we tend to pay attention to emotional things. Well, what we've learned is that people with anxiety disorders have this tendency to pay attention in particular to danger. And that happens incredibly rapidly. So rapidly that patients are not necessarily aware of the fact that they are monitoring anxiety in very rapid, subtle ways. They're, they're monitoring threat in their environments. So what this has led a number of groups, including my group, to do is to come up with ways to kind of train the brain uh, to get rid of this tendency to monitor threats. And, and this is a little bit like the things that you might see uh, advertised um, on Pandora frequently for things like luminosity. Now, so these are brain training games. Now, the important thing to note is this research is really just getting started, and it's very interesting and very promising, but it's really too early for anybody to be going out and paying money or to uh, even be using these kinds of treatments, even if they're free, as a standalone treatment for their, their anxiety. We don't, we don't know enough about them uh, to the point where they can be considered first-line treatments. On the other hand, if the findings continue to go the way that they've been going, uh, there is a reasonable possibility that a part of therapy visits one day relatively soon, within a couple of years, could be playing certain forms of video games uh, that would actually be therapeutic. So that's really some of the most exciting research that's come down the pike recently. Yeah, and I'm sure our kids would really like that too. Yeah, you know, you, we, we tend to be careful when we, when we, uh, tell the kids that these are games because they, they clearly are games in one sense. Uh, in the, on the other hand, um, they're conducted from the neuroscience standpoint, so relative to the kind of games that kids are used to playing, they're, they're not quite as exciting as the kind of things that, you know, the kids might encounter on the, in their regular daily lives. Right. Um, we have a group of parents in our organization that are very interested in complementary or, or alternative treatments. Have you um, seen any of these treatments um, that, that have been effective in any of your research? So there tends to be less kind of uh, very high-level, rigorously conducted research on uh, complementary and alternative medications relative uh, to other treatments. And again, and again uh, we could spend a lot of time talking about why that is, and there would be a fair amount of debate about it. Um, but the fact of the matter is that there is less research. So there's, there's less research on those alternatives in general. Uh, the second thing to say is that, that my attitude about selecting from among those is, is really to consider 
two things right off the top. One is, what is the overall strength of the evidence that one or another complementary and alternative treatment is effective? And then number two, are there any concerns that it that it might be harmful? So there there are really two complementary and alternative approaches. I, I won't call them medications because they're really they're not medications. Two approaches that that really do fit the bill in terms of there is some evidence that suggests that they're helpful, and there's really no evidence to suggest that they're harmful. One of those is exercise, and so there's a lot of interest in developing exercise regimens for patients, and and both for kids with anxiety as well as for kids with depression. That's a very good approach to consider. And then the second are psychotherapies that are based on mindfulness. So both of those really stand out. Um, probably after those, the, some of these computer games that, that I was talking about also might fall into that category. And if one were specifically to consider medication, probably the one that has the strongest evidence in general um, are the omega-3 fatty acids. Um, the evidence for anxiety is weaker than the evidence for things like ADHD and for mood disorders. Um, and again, I would say that the evidence there is that, the, that these treatments are not as good as the other treatments that we have. Um, but if one were looking at the list of complementary and alternative uh, substances that, that people would take, um, omega-3 would really be the only one that, that I think is in the, in the conversation clinically. Uh, you know, there are others um, where I think there's legitimate interest. So, uh, you know, N-acetylcysteine, I think, is the one that uh, scientifically has generated the most interest. But I, I don't think those are um, at the point where, where I could recommend to parents that they consider trying them. <clears throat> yes, I, I think um, probably we still need to have um, some more uh, research done in this area. So, um, you touched on CBT earlier in our in our discussion, but can you speak to the benefits of psychotherapy in this age group? Is it important to consider both medication and, and psychotherapy, and what kind of psychotherapy has proven to be most helpful? Well, so again, cognitive behavioral therapy is really a major success story, and organizations like the uh, Anxiety and Depression Association of America that have really tried to increase awareness of the efficacy of this treatment uh, are very important to take note of. So this is a treatment that really works as well for a mental health condition as just about any treatment that we have. So um, for parents that want to get treatment for their uh, child with an anxiety disorder, that's really the place to start, cognitive behavioral therapy. And, and there are a few uh, resources to consider. Um, so there are a couple of books that talk about the way uh, cognitive behavioral therapy uh, works. Uh, there's a book by Ron Rapee called Helping Your Anxious Child. Uh, that's particularly good. Uh, Reed Wilson has another recent book on uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, as does Mary Alvord. And again, the Anxiety and Depression Association of America on their website lists other resources. 
the important thing to note is that cognitive behavioral therapy has a certain structure and a certain format, and it, it really works best when the therapy conforms to that structure and that format. So it's not enough for parents to simply look for psychotherapy for their child with an anxiety disorder, but they should consult those books or the website that I mentioned, and they should recognize that the procedures that their therapists are using resemble the procedures that are described in these resources for cognitive behavioral therapy. And that basically, in in a 30-second description, involves creating what, what we call a fear hierarchy that lists the array of uh, things that a child is afraid of, kind of starting with the, the least frightening things to the most frightening, and then teaches that child over a series of visits new techniques, cognitive te- techniques to use when they're confronting items on that fear hier- hierarchy, and then finally runs through a series of what we call exposure sessions, where the child with the therapist is directly exposed to the things that they're afraid of, and the parents learn to work with the therapist about how to implement that kind of exposure, where we we begin low on that fear hierarchy, and over a series of weeks to months, build our way up where the child becomes successful in controlling their fear in those settings. And in terms of depression, is CBT as helpful or what would be more helpful with depression? Yeah, so the data are not as strong uh, on CBT for depression. Um, the data are strongest in, in kids who have failed a medication trial. So there it does look like in, in kids who have failed one or two antidepressant trials, it does look like cognitive behavioral therapy uh, works better than trying a third medication in those kids. Um, but as a first-line treatment, we generally do not do as well with cognitive behavioral therapy for depression. And um, it's not really clear why that's the case. Uh, there's some thoughts that there, that there are, are kind of differences among the, the different techniques that different therapists use in CBT for depression, um, and that those differences are greater than in anxiety. So that that might be the case. So, for example, if you were to read any of those resources that I that I just listed for anxiety, you would you would see basically the same message from all the different resources and all the different therapists. That's less the case for depression, where there are. Um, more substantial differences among the different kind of variants of CBT, so that's one possibility. Another possibility is that that um, some practitioners and scientists think that activation or, or kind of getting people out into the world doing active things is particularly important in therapy with depression and that um, not all the therapies have placed enough weight potentially on on that thought. But, you know, until uh, a large-scale research study has kind of demonstrated a, a better effect uh, than has been possible to, 
demonstrate up until now, you know, we're really just going to be speculating about what are the better ways to treat depression. So more than anything, we really need more research about novel therapies. Mm-hmm. What can families do to support their children and adolescents who are living with anxiety or depression? And what are what have some families found to be most helpful in dealing with a child who is living with depression or anxiety? You know, support groups or family therapies. Sure. Well, so I think it, it, a lot of it starts with awareness. So I think um, anybody who's still listening to the video or the or the recording at this point has really taken a wonderful first step uh, to kind of make yourself uh, aware of the knowledge that's available through the kinds of uh, websites and books that I've mentioned. Um, the second thing is to really have a healthcare practitioner uh, where you can kind of open up this discussion. Uh, you know, one of the nice things about pediatrics is that uh, pediatricians increasingly see uh, dealing with the mental health needs, particularly of, of adolescents, but also of younger kids. Pediatricians really see that as a major part of their job, and so many of them are, are quite interested in talking with parents and kids themselves about their mental health needs and are interested in in reaching out to mental health practitioners like myself uh, to better work with families. So I talk with pediatricians regularly about the kinds of things that uh, they can do for their patients. And parents really should look to their pediatricians to respond with interest and excitement when parents bring their mental health problems uh, to the pediatrician. And then the third thing is the kind of parent-based groups are really one of the best things that, that any parent who is worried about a problem can do um, because there are so many different varieties of problems that we see in kids, and it's very hard for even the most experienced practitioner to be aware of all the things that happen because parents live with these problems every single day. Many times they're much more aware of these kinds of nuances. So parent groups provide an an avenue where parents can really share the kinds of problems that they've faced and and it can help other parents be on the lookout for their those pro- problems as they arise and they can also share ideas about what are the kinds of things that have been helpful and that can really get to a solution much more quickly than if a parent had to kind of, you know, invent all these things on their own. Dr. Pine, it's been a real pleasure having you here with us today to explore these issues that are so important to our parents. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay. Well, it's been my pleasure as well. This has been a production of the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance. For more information, go to www.dbsalliance.org or call 1-800-826-3632. We've been there. We can help.